Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Shelly Brisbane. Shelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Who are you, Shelly? I am a writer and a podcaster and an accessibility advocate and just a general uh, tinkerer with all things audio geekery in my spare time. We have things in common podcasting and writing anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's actually start with, you have a book. Will you tell people about your book? I do. My book is called iOS Access for All, Your Comprehensive Guide to Accessibility for iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch. I made that title so long that there's no point in further explanation in most cases. But basically what it is is a comprehensive tour of the accessibility features within Apple's iOS platform. And it is the iOS 9 edition, which is the third edition of this particular book. I've written a bunch of other mainstream tech books, but this is my first book to cover accessibility and actually my first iOS book as well. And it is out now and available on my website and in iTunes and the iBookstore. So this is actually a really good segue um, into why why did you decide to write a book uh, specifically about accessibility um, on the iOS uh, ecosystem? So my background is as a technology journalist and writer. I've been doing that since 1986 when I got my first Mac Plus, and I've always written and I've always written about technology in the mainstream world and written a bunch of books and have been very involved in the Mac journalism community, worked at Mac user in the 90s and freelanced for most of the Mac magazines that were out there and did a number of other things in in the magazine and writing world. And I'd never dealt with accessibility, which was an issue in my life because I am a a visually impaired person, what is called low vision in the trade. And I have vision that allows me to use computers and mobile devices as you normally would, but I sometimes uh, magnify the screen or change the appearance of the screen in a way that makes it easier for me to see. And I'd never really written about accessibility. And part of the reason was that there honestly wasn't a market for it. And I also felt really strongly that I wanted to work in the mainstream environment because I felt like I had the uh, the interest there. I was much more interested in, in writing about how to work the Mac operating system than I was in writing about accessibility, to be honest. But then there came a point in my life when iOS was released and I wanted to play just like everybody else did with the iPhone, and I found I couldn't use it because it didn't have any accessibility features, whether it was a screen reader or magnification or anything that allowed me to use it the way anybody else would. So there were a couple of years there where I felt like I was in the iOS wilderness and I didn't get to play with the toys that everybody else could play with. And then Apple in 2009 introduced VoiceOver and the other accessibility features, which have improved over time. And I noticed that in the few folks that I was still in touch with that were blind or visually impaired that iOS was just becoming hugely popular because like the Mac before it, iOS had these built-in accessibility features instead of requiring people to go ahead and buy tools that allowed them to add screen readers to their computers as is the tr- is the case in the Windows world. And I thought, well, maybe there's an article in there or maybe there's a book in there. And I looked around and I, I know a lot about the technology book world. I had written a number of books and, you know, been published and stuff. And so I got on Google and I said, well, hey, surely there's something about accessibility in iOS. Nothing, nothing at all. And I felt like I had something to contribute there. And so I decided well, I'm just going to write it. First of all, I'm going to teach myself all the features I don't know. Mm. And then I'm going to see if I can make a book or some sort of ebook formatted thing, whether it was going to be a pamphlet or whether it was going to be a full length book, 
and see how far I could get. And the next thing I knew, I had written this 600-page thing, which <laughs> turned into the book. And I'm on the third edition, and I'm really glad I did. And it's taught me a lot about not only the accessibility tools in iOS, but the self-publishing process, because this is also the first time I've ever published a book myself as opposed to working with a mainstream publisher. So it seems to me as as a, a sighted person, a fully sighted person who is aware and definitely more aware than I used to be, but it seems like we don't talk about accessibility frequently. I think that um, kind of in the circles I run in that it's a, it's a topic of conver- conversation more often. Um, but until I really started the podcast, I personally didn't think about accessibility all that much. I'm, you know, I'm ashamed to say it, but you know, it's true. Um, why do you think that is? It, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of intersecting conversation here and I feel like there should be more. Do you have any thoughts as to why it's so separate? Well, obviously, I agree with that totally. Um, I think that there are two aspects of it. One is just the general interest in diversity that I think is probably more top of mind for a lot of people in the past few years than it used to be. But even when we do talk about that, when we talk about gender equality or we talk about uh, racial tolerance, or well, that's an old term, but when, when we talk about actually including everyone, uh, the category that is mentioned least often is accessibility or disability. And the, the irony of that to me is that more people experience a disability throughout their life or during some portion of their life than are in a lot of the other groups that we address. And I, you know, actually am, am fully supportive and fully am an ally of, of people who are working for rights for uh, folks who are LGBT or who have uh, experienced racial discrimination or who are female, obviously, because I'm that as well. But when we talk about uh, diversity in employment, for example, we don't hear about accessibility. And then the other half of that is in technology. Obviously, accessibility is important because in order to use the technology that is now so much a part of our lives, uh, those devices need to be made accessible in some fashion or there need to be devices that provide accessibility that the mainstream devices don't. And I'm not saying that those things don't exist, but we don't find that accessibility and disability are part of those kinds of conversations. And it just really baffles me. And I think that even in the technology world where accessibility is discussed in terms of either something that has to be done for legal reasons, especially in the United States with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or something that is a technological solution that can be done and has been done by companies like Apple. Um, We don't really discuss that in terms of, in the same way that we discuss other tech features, for example, in terms of, you know, qualitatively, is the accessibility that's provided good? It's enough for a lot of people to know it's there, and then they feel like they don't have to worry about it any longer. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that I know why it is. Um, I can just say that I find it frustrating and that part of the way I advocate, especially when I'm in mainstream context and without, and when I say mainstream, by the way, I'm just talking about places and people who are not uh, addressing accessibility as part of what they do on a daily basis. So that's like the shorthand that I've come up with and that a lot of folks in the accessibility community use. Yeah. um, And it's, it's fascinating to me Um, because I don't know. So I think about, especially 
on the Apple side of things, I had uh, Dr. Robert Carter on a while back, and I know that um, you've been a guest on his podcast. Oh, yeah, I know um, Rob really well. Yeah, and um, we were talking about, I asked him about, um, I think, iOS apps specifically and and what iOS apps do a really good job of um, of being accessible, of being voiceover compatible. And, um, and he was like, well, basically, if you're using Apple's frameworks, there's not a whole lot of work for you to do. Like if you start doing custom things, then, then it gets harder. And he spoke with great admiration to, to the way that Apple has done that. And, you know, it's, it's taken them a while to get here, but it's interesting to me that, um, other other companies don't have that in mind because it's it's so many people are affected um you know and it's basically like handing apple business or handing third party hardware manufacturers business or, or software developers business because you're not building in accessibility uh to your product and that that's that's absolutely baffling to me um, and it's weird that we don't, we don't have these conversations about it. And I've been guilty of doing that thing where I'm talking about advocacy and, um, it's like on Twitter and people with disabilities is too many characters. And so I leave it out and that's not okay, <laughs> but that's a thing that I do. Um, and I've caught myself doing it more frequently lately, but, um, I don't know. Maybe I should start blogging instead of ranting on Twitter about things. Well, well, just as a hint, there's a hashtag, and a lot. Some people don't like it in the accessibility community. I don't really know why they don't like it because it's easy and it's simple. And if you see the hashtag A11Y, that's accessibility, and usually it's applied to to tech. So that's one way of including it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, but but I think too, uh, it's not even so much people who you know to to be really to be really honest i mean somebody like yourself who who thinks about uh inclusiveness as a part of what you do you're not who i'm trying to sell right. when when i when the thing that frustrates me on twitter is if i see uh apple released its diversity report or here's an article that goes through apple's diversity report and analyzes it but in neither of those instances do we find out whether they've addressed the issue of how many disabled people work within mm -hmm. apple and and the question isn't even asked if you if you did that and there was no uh category for a particular ethnicity or for women in engineering like like you would get as specific as to say okay well there are x number of women at apple if you don't address how many of them are in engineering that would obviously be a pretty glaring flaw in that study but you wouldn't think to say, in most cases, people wouldn't think to say, gosh, I wonder how many blind engineers work there mm -hmm. or, or how many engineers with some sort of disability at all. Because obviously, even if I'm not blind, I might have a greater sensitivity to accessibility as a general matter. And I might understand the accessibility framework uh, if I have some other disability. Yep. So that's, that's the issue that I, I feel like accessibility doesn't penetrate even when we're trying to talk about diversity from a, from both a quantifiable and a non-quantifiable point of view. Yeah. And we totally need to. Totally need to. Well, um, I was looking this morning. So this is, we were recording on Friday the 13th um, of May. And uh, Ars Technica had a redesign um, that went up yesterday. And I don't know if 
if you've looked at it yet, but someone linked to something there this morning and I started looking and they, they have this, um, this green that's like that default bright neon green. It's not quite, but it's a very bright shade and it's against a black background in some cases and it's against a white background in others. And it is so low contrast on that white background and I was in the relay slack this morning and I was like did they even like test this with people with low vision because that that contrast is so awful and why aren't people thinking about this or I see you uh light gray text on white backgrounds and yeah why it's a huge problem even in apps yeah so you'll have an app that has a perfectly uh high contrast main body and then they have those hamburger menus the thing about web accessibility generally, I mean, there are web accessibility guidelines. There are people and consultancies who do nothing but web accessibility. And a lot of it is oriented toward uh, being compatible with screen readers. There are low vision oriented guidelines and contrast guidelines and that sort of stuff, many of which are not implemented. And often the, in my experience, and and I should say parenthetically that not all low vision is the same low vision. Mm-hmm. So I can complain about contrast because that's an issue particularly for me. Other people might have issues with magnification or something like that. Uh, But a lot of times the guidelines that are most important and that are most quickly dealt with have to do with screen readers. Uh, And then low vision gets sort of short shrift because that sort of treads on the territory of designers. iOS 7 was a huge deal for that. So all the people that complained about iOS 7, multiply that by 100 for the low vision community. Mm -hmm. We hated it, just hated it. I had a section in my first two editions of the book in the low vision chapter called The Woes of iOS 7 because it was just miserable. And so you're writing a book and you're trying to teach people how to do stuff and you don't want to say, this is crap, this is terrible, they need to fix it. What you want to say is, well, here's Here's what we can do to mitigate the harm, given that you have an iOS device in your hand. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that's that's a challenge. And, and uh, there's some uh, high-profile tech sites whose contrast I'm not all that fond of. And <laughs> but, you know, and, and, sometimes, and, and sometimes you can get that remedied by communicating with a developer or a site creator and saying – and I know Jason has talked about this. Uh, Jason Snell has talked about how he got some commentary from folks that – he could do something very small with his CSS and make his site more accessible. And he was able to respond to that and probably was better able to respond to that because he's one guy with all the code in his hand. Yeah. Whereas if you're talking to a corporate entity, maybe even something like ours, but but certainly like if it's a shopping site or something like that, or maybe even a government site, it's going to be hard to knock on that door and say, you know, if you could just change the contrast a little bit or if you could just make it so that that's not – gray background and white text you know that would be really swell yeah it's hard to do yeah it is and and so um just to review ios 7 the thing it's been so many years ago now but the thing that i remember most is that switch to lightweight fonts yes um especially um like the keyboard um but kind of everywhere there was the Helvetica new font, which which is a readable font, except that they chose to use very lightweight typefaces. Mm-hmm. They also uh, changed the contrast of the keyboard, and there were some uh, there are transparency issues, so that you had uh, backgrounds that were not opaque enough that you could actually get a hold of it and you know grab at the contrast properly. And over time, they've changed, and now of course there's a, a whole new San Francisco font, which is fine, except that what developers are doing now. 
uh, is actually, in order to get more text on the screen, which is ironic given that we have bigger phones now, they are using smaller typefaces. Mm. And that's really irritating. And a lot of them, Apple has this great thing called dynamic type, which allows you as the user to set the relative size of type. If you need your type somewhat larger, you can do that. And, it, and the text is supposed to respond in whatever app supports that supports it. But a lot of developers don't use it. Apple doesn't even universally use it. If you want to see its effects, you can go into mail or messages or calendar in an Apple product and on iOS. But a lot of developers do not address it. And I was excited. That was the thing in iOS 7. They hadn't fully developed it in the first release, but subsequently they did. And I was excited. And I kept talking about dynamic type. And I knew it wasn't going anywhere because I was the only one saying the words dynamic type. Mm. You know how it is. If, it, if there's a feature, how, whatever it is labeled in the operating system, if it has a name that everybody knows and everybody's excited about the feature, they talk about it. But neither in mainstream land or in accessibility land, when I would be on podcasts or when I would be writing, whenever I talked about dynamic type, nobody else would go, yeah, let's talk about dynamic type. Nobody, it just didn't penetrate for people. But it, it's important and it exists for a reason and – don't don't I guess I'm my number is someone who is currently like diving into iOS and I keep saying that on the show but I'm actually doing it now uh like don't mess with those things just just leave them and build around it because like they exist for a reason <laughs> yep 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 indeed well and and dynamic type is an example where there are people who's and you always a lot of accessibility Orient folks do this, and I, I'm going to do it, but I don't like it. They say, you know, your users are also getting older, and everybody's eyes get worse mm. as they get older. So, so the idea is accessibility itself, for its own self, for its own sake, is not as compelling as saying, well, your mom's getting old too. And I would prefer it if they would just say, you know, some people's eyes can't see as text that is as small as the text that you, at the age of 25, uh, and who created this app, can see. So. Uh, could, could you just make it so that I can choose and you don't have to worry about it? If you just give me the choice, if you just support dynamic type, then uh, you and I don't have to have a conversation about how your your app is not accessible, <laughs> at least to me. And then that, and then I, I should has, I should point out quickly that that doesn't address screen reader compatibility and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's it, it's a specific example where the fix is actually fairly straightforward. Yeah, it, it it's. Um... It's fascinating to me that, and I don't know if this is like a lizard brain human thing or if it's a cultural thing that it's so hard for us. And I'm including myself in that to empathize unless we can somehow directly put ourselves in the shoes of other people, you know, and that's, that's where the whole, well, you know, in, in 20 years, this, this would be an app that you wouldn't be able to use, or, you know, your, your mom or your dad might not be able to see this so well, or the same with like feminism and, and daddy feminism, you know, like, like the dads who were like, Oh, things are pretty messed up, but I didn't realize it until I had a daughter <laughs> and, you know, what is I don't I don't know what that is, but it's definitely a thing. Um, and and it's it's so frustrating. It's just like, why can't you take two seconds to consider something from someone else's point of view and someone else's experiences? Like, I don't expect you to know every use case of everything ever. But once you learn about something, why is it so hard to abstractly consider it instead of having to be like, oh, well, think about your mom. But see, that gets into one of my, my big beefs with 
and I'll just say tech journalism because that's the world I've lived in. It's certainly true in other areas too. But the reason that a lot of times accessibility is not top of mind is because people with accessibility needs are not doing that writing or they're not on those podcasts. They're not being listened to. They're, they don't have the ability to and, – and, and when when an article about the new operating system is written – it's either not written by somebody whose voice includes their accessibility needs or it's not written with the consultation of those people. So if you're creating a new operating system that has a vastly visual interface, different interface, and you're writing a general general article on that subject, I would hope that if you uh, knew somebody who was low vision or who was blind, that one thing you might do is shoot them an email and say, hey, if you had a chance to look at iOS 7, what's your take? Or what do you, based on what you know or based on my description of this, you know, what, what's your thoughts on it? Or that you might hire somebody to do the writing who had experience or knowledge of accessibility or who might have sources that do or who might know. Uh, like, I don't know a great deal about web accessibility in terms of the nitty gritty of how you would program a website. I know that there are accessibility checkers that will help you with that. But I know a lot of people who do know that. I have friends and colleagues who are in that and and that's and it's all you know it's all about your networks and expanding your networks and also just voices so like if you have a podcast or an article that covers the big new thing whether it be the apple watch or a new version of android uh why isn't there at least one person in that conversation who can address some part of accessibility yeah and especially i mean with with twitter it's really not hard i mean you can just say, hey, do I know anybody who and tweet it out and ask people to retweet and you can you can find people that way. Um, but instead, we just ignore it. Yeah. And also, I think we don't get into the nuts and bolts of what accessibility is about. So, for example, Apple, I've spent many, many years covering Apple, writing about Apple and being, quite frankly, a fan of their products, except for those two dark years when the <laughs> iPhone didn't have accessibility. The bad time. Uh, I, I was using Apple products all along. I just didn't have an iPhone. But um, people, when they talk about accessibility, and I've, I've literally seen this in articles from, from very well-known, theoretically well-meaning tech journalists who, in my opinion, are just ignorant and they're not digging in deep enough, they'll say, Apple has a commitment to accessibility. They've made a place in iTunes where you can see all the audio-described content. They've made it so that voiceover works better with this app. Or they've um, – what's the one they did recently? I'm, I'm blanking. But the commitment to accessibility, first of all, is perceived as good. Second of all, is exemplified by a thing that Apple has done. But there's never any discussion of, hey, from a qualitative point of view, does it work? Mm -hmm. It's like saying the iPhone has Siri. And the assumption being that Siri always works all the time and does everything you need. And clearly that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And so there's no qualitative discussion of accessibility either. And not just in terms of how well the accessibility works, but just in terms of, I mean, in terms of does it work or doesn't work, but how well does a particular feature actually solve the problem at hand? For example, if I'm blind and I have what's called a refreshable Braille display, which allows you to take the output of the iPhone and have it displayed to you in Braille and also allows you to type in Braille and have that converted into text. How well does that, this is, this is, and I'm getting niche and geeky for a specific reason, mm -hmm. how, but how well does that device actually work, that specific device, because right. there are lots of them, Apple supports like 70 of them or something, but how well does that specific device address accessibility? Does it work? 
Now, that may be too niche for a mainstream article that says iOS supports accessibility. But the person who knows the answer to the question of whether that Braille display works well with accessibility, uh, works well with iOS, also knows a lot about what has been changed in iOS 9 to make it more accessible. It also knows whether, that person also knows whether the level of bugs is more or less. Uh, that person also knows whether a feature that is designed for them is, for, for example, the dynamic type thing, whether that feature is actually being implemented well by developers. And that information rarely gets into these giant reviews of the new operating system or into books that cover op the operating system from a mainstream point of view. Believe me, I tried to, you know, glom on, add accessibility to a lot of material that's being written by people I know who do, who do mainstream stuff. And there's just very little interest in it. Mm -hmm. And nobody will really discuss why that is, whether it's, I, I don't think it's, you know, just blatant prejudice or anything. I right. think it's a, a belief that the market isn't interested and that even though we're in a, a web and a podcast universe where there aren't really time and space limits in the same way that there were in the printed world, there's this belief that the the space, space and time available is precious and that there's really not room to cover accessibility because a small percentage of the audience is interested. But that... Uh... I'm making my frustrated noises because, again, <laughs> like you said, we don't, it's not print. It's, it's, you can, whatever you're yeah. spending money on pixels. I don't know. And, right. Right. Um, f furthermore, one, I mean, people need to be aware whether, whatever, they need to be aware that accessibility options exist. And two, it's acting as though people who have disabilities and who rely on accessibility are in some kind of vacuum where they aren't interested in the mainstream books, which is bizarre to me. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like why not appeal? There are so many, there are so many people I know in the accessibility community who consume mainstream content right. they also consume and make their own and as i say there's there's plenty of room for niches to exist and there's a whether you want to call it healthy or not there, there there's a good accessibility journalism community i'm part of it i know a lot of other people that are we talk about stuff that i would not impose on a mainstream audience because we would have to do what i just did which is basic explain what a braille display is every time and that's mm. that's not necessary but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't come up. And it doesn't mean, as I say, that it shouldn't come up in a qualitative way. Right. Because there's this sort of patronizing thing that happens where you say, and this is the way I say it when I'm being really blunt. I'd love to say this on Twitter when I get mad. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're patting people on the head and we're saying, uh, okay, Apple has provided you accessibility. Good Apple. Nice Apple. Mm -hmm. Now you go over there and you use your accessibility stuff and, and we'll go over here to the grown-ups table and we'll talk about APIs and Bluetooth and Siri and all the important features that are part of the operating system. But accessibility, because it exists, we don't have to feel guilty anymore and yeah. we don't have to push Apple. You know, Apple's got other problems. Let's worry about those problems and let's not discuss from a qualitative point of view. And let's not include when we're when we're reviewing a product, if we're reviewing a new tw Twitter client, let's not address whether it's accessibility. Oh, but I don't know whether it's accessible because I don't know how voiceover works. Yeah, but I bet you know some people on Twitter who can help you with that. Yep. Um, so as an aside, I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you're a developer or designer um, and you haven't got the message yet that you should have 
you should one be doing testing. I mean, I hope you know that anyway, but two, you need to have a large pool of people with all sorts of diversity so that your product works for all sorts of people. Because like, obviously you want in these types of cases, you probably want to increase your pool, but you're going to lose potential customers and users if you're not testing with people with low vision or who rely on screen screen readers or who are deaf or who don't hear as well. Um, like if you've got audio components, like call people out. You can ask specifically, ask on Twitter, hey, I'm looking for testers with low vision, different sorts of low vision to come test my app because I want everyone to be able to use it. And I'm pretty sure people are going to respond to that. Just ask for retweets. And like, that stuff gets retweeted all the time. Yeah, it totally does. I mean, if you take nothing away from this conversation, do that. That's it's it it's and there are and I should say that there are developers out there who either got it automatically initially and then produce great stuff or who got a few people who contacted them and said, can I help? And mm. got help and did it. And they're, they're, those are great developers and we, we talk about them all the time. And there's a great site called AppleViz that has a hall of fame for the apps that are not only just great apps but have done the most in terms of uh, promoting accessibility by including testers who are users of those products, whether they have low vision or blindness or whether they use switches to control their devices or, or whatever nice. accessibility they And then there are other developers who just inexplicably won't respond. And it's not as big a problem as it used to be, but when there's a one app that you really want to use and it has inexplicable accessibility problems, it gets frustrating. But as I say, I think the problem, I, I, I harp on the, the side that I, where I, the street, the part of the street where I work, because I think there's a problem with those who cover the industry as well. Uh, just not, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, and I, I'm not addressing you here, but I'm, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. saying it's, it's easy to say uh, we should all encourage developers to do this. We should all encourage users with accessibility needs to contact developers. Uh, but when we're covering an industry, when we're writing about what people are doing, and giving them credit or not credit for accessibility, we need to look in a more detailed way at what that means. Mm -hmm. And when we give Apple credit, we need to know what we're giving them credit for. So if I hear that Apple has done great with accessibility, my question always is, and how does that manifest itself? What do you know about what they've done with accessibility? And can I tell you a few times when they did, were great? And can I tell you a few times when they weren't? And can I tell you why? And can, maybe that will help you understand uh, I mean, you know, something that happens, and this is, I guess, back to developers, but there's a thing that happens when an app gets updated. And if you have your iPhone set to automatically accept that update, sometimes an update will break accessibility. Mm. Uh-oh, screen reader doesn't work with it. I guess I need to use a new Twitter client for a while, whatever the app is. Um, that doesn't typically happen in the same way with Apple, but it can. And Again, the issue there is not to say Apple bad because Apple has ways of learning about it. And Apple actually is pretty good about getting input from the community and they have a number of ways of doing that. I think the issue is that people who cover Apple are too quick to give it credit and to not look into situations where the accessibility that Apple is talking about is more platitudes than substance. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. So Apple is doing this 
push for Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which I think is next week or something. I don't even know because I'm a bad accessibility advocate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the two initiatives that they talked about were the fact that you can now buy accessibility-related accessories, a few of them, on the Apple site. And then the other one was that audio-described programs are now collected in iTunes. Well, that's great. I can search for audio description in iTunes, and I can find a bunch of movies that have audio description. Not enough of them, but it's great that I can find them. Mm -hmm. Do you know where I can't find that? On the Apple TV. But nobody knows that if they don't ask. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not and, – and, and my, my point there is not to say, thanks a lot, Apple. My point is to say, if you're going to give Apple credit, be as honest and as complete about that credit as you would if you were discussing another feature that Apple has in its yeah. in its product or that Microsoft has or Google or anybody. And I talk most about Apple because that's what I know. I can rant about Android, but, you know, you get the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I think as you've said... For many of us, it's like, oh, yeah, the the here's your cookie. You know, you've said accessibility. You've let us know that you're thinking about it in some way. So good job, Apple, you know, and, and do your thing. And then uh, because most mainstream tech journalists are, you know, don't have any disabilities. They're just like, OK, this is that's fine. And then they move on and. And, and just don't think to ask the question, yeah. gee, I wonder if I can look for those audio-described movies on the Apple TV. Yeah. Or, golly, you know those Netflix series that are audio-described? Audio Why aren't they audio-described when you get them in the, the, the iTunes store? And that has to do with, you know, rights and legalities and stuff like that, I'm sure. Again, the, the issue is not these are bad things and you should always be pointing out bad things. The issue is just depth and comprehensiveness of thinking, you know, thinking Critically. deeply about... Yeah. Uh, those issues or or asking the right questions. There's just not a lot of question asking. Yeah. There's a whole lot of giving people credit when they do good things. Or, you know, the, the, the negative or the critical pieces that you see are when somebody's accessibility is completely lacking. Yeah. Like if there's just not accessible and then everybody can jump on the bandwagon and go, bad company, bad company. But that's shallow. Mm-hmm. This week's episode of Less Than or Equal is brought to you by MartianCraft. MartianCraft is behind some of the most prominent software on the App Store, but what you may not know is that they offer a wide variety of training. They have classes to accommodate everyone from entry level to senior iOS developers. Anyone who's seeking to amplify their skills or improve collaborative problem solving, which is so important. I went and looked at their list of classes just a minute ago, and it's huge. Fortune 500 companies rely on Martian Craft to make their teams and software even better. You can find out for yourself why they're the right choice for your company by going to martiancraft.com slash training to learn more. Our thanks to Martian Craft for sponsoring Less Than or Equal and all of Relay FM. So Shelly, I'm curious, um, because I know that you've you've done both mainstream journalism and done things with an accessibility focus, but have you have you done much in the intersection of the two or has that been a separate thing for you? 
That is like a great question, partly because it's such an awesome softball. Um, (laughs) Okay, so first I'll plug my podcast. Okay. So I do a podcast called The Parallel, where I bring together two guests to talk about a topic. The topic can be as broad as gaming or CES or the new iOS or whatever we're going to talk about. One guest is usually from the mainstream community and one guest is usually from accessibility community. And they're, you know, well-spoken. A lot of them are podcasters. But we talk about the topic and accessibility comes up somewhat organically. Obviously, there's a little bit of a fix in because of who the guest is. But the point is to not make it a show about accessibility. I call it a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. And the reason I started that was because one of the central issues and and sort of conundrums of my life has been living in both a mainstream world and an accessibility world. And I spent the first 25 years of my career as a writer working exclusively in mainstream technology, and I covered Apple. I started out as a desktop publisher, and the the Mac was my first accessibility platform, basically, because back in those days, you designed newsletters and newspapers on layout, on, on light tables, and I couldn't do that, but I could do it with Mac Plus. So I had this thing that, an accessibility hack that I had created for myself, and it took me into writing about technology in the mainstream way. And I spent, you know, 25 years doing that. And I edited magazines and I was networking editor at Mac user. And I wrote for every Mac magazine in a freelance capacity that I possibly could. And I wrote a whole ton of books. And so a lot of that for me was just my desire to not be a professional accessibility person. As a lot of, frankly, the the unemployment rate among people with disabilities is super high. And one of the, if if you look at where a lot of people with disabilities are employed, a lot of them are in uh, accessibility-oriented professions, whether it be programming for accessibility devices or apps or whatever, or whether it be in rehabilitation entities working with government to help people who are adjusting to a new disability or people who who are learning how to work with a disability they've had all along. And that was just not a path that interested me. And frankly, I think it was, for me, running the other way was a, a pretty big thing. And I felt like, you know, I have the the skills and the talent to to do what that, that, go in the mainstream direction. But I also just felt like I would learn more. I would grow more as a writer and as a person. And so I did that, and I was happy doing it. I really was. Um, I've been freelancing from home for a number of years. And there was a point at which I was looking around for new projects and having had the experience that I had with iOS not being accessible for a while and not even really feeling like I had an outlet to talk about that. It was an experience I had in my personal life, but I never really had the ability to go and say, hey, this is a thing and I really hope Apple fixes it at some point. Or even when it happened, the celebrating I did was on my own personal podcast and among my friends, but it was not something I did professionally. And then at some point a couple of years ago, I, I talked before about coming to the realization that there wasn't really anything out there that did in a comprehensive way cover the accessibility in iOS. And I thought, well, maybe this is a way that I can bring the skills I've developed as a writer to bear on a topic that is under addressed and underserved. And so it wasn't an altruistic thing on my part. Believe me, I'm, I'm getting paid and I'm self-published and all that good stuff. But I did feel like there was an opportunity to take some of the frustrations. I would also sit and read on Twitter these things of, you know, we're covering diversity, but we're not talking about accessibility or we're covering mainstream tech, but we're not talking about accessibility. And that wasn't the reality I was seeing when I was communicating with friends or when I started to sort of tinker around with accessible, accessible social media, as it were. And so that was the decision I made to write to do this project. And because I was self-published, all of the 
communication I had to do about the project was, oh, wait, I have to get to know the accessibility community. I have to develop a presence. I have to develop a, a following. I have to, I can't just say, hi, I'm a published <laughs> mainstream tech writer. Please buy my book. They were like, right. and you are who? Mm-hmm. And so I developed, I, I just, you know, I went into that community about three years ago and said, hi, I'm going to write a book. What do you guys think of that? <laughs> and uh, what came of that was that I ended up going more and more into the accessibility community uh, than I had imagined that I would. And I found that even when I would get back into the mainstream world as far as writing or appearing on podcasts or just talking to people, that accessibility as a filter was more and more of a part of what I was talking about. But that was frustrating to me because I was like, am I, t- am I talking too much about this? Like when I go on so, – like I, I was on, uh, I was on uh, the, the Fabulous Clockwise podcast on Relay FM this week, and uh, we talked about mainstream topics, as we often do. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where it was relevant to a topic we were discussing that I mentioned that I was visually impaired. And I said, okay, that's fine. I have no problem with that. That's, it was a perfectly appropriate thing to do. But then after I got off, I was like – Oh crap! The last time I was on Clockwise, I mentioned I was visually impaired. Am I doing that too? Much? And you know, you 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 worry about, you know, you get uh, insecure about stuff like mm-hmm. that, and it's weird. But <laughs> so that's there's all there. It, I won't say always, but since I uh, basically allowed accessibility into my life professionally, I've had to sort of figure out uh, what those parameters are, and like, am I? Am I straddling the fence? Am I walking a tightrope? You know, pick whatever metaphor you would like to pick. Uh, can I work in both worlds? Do I need to work in both worlds? And I, which is kind of the source of where the parallel podcast came from, because it was like, look, I can go on to the, the most well-known accessibility podcast I appear on, and we can talk about accessibility news for an hour, and I can feel great about it and have a good experience. And then I can go on to a mainstream podcast and plug that accessibility podcast that nobody's heard of. And there's a whiplash thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided I'd make a show where I could talk to both halves of myself, both halves of my professional self, I should say. And that's a super long answer, and I'll stop talking now. But that's <laughs> kind of kind of the conundrum I face when I'm figuring out what to what to do work wise and how to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I I'll offer my perspective because I'm I'm an occasional guest on Clockwise, and um, I listen every week. Um, Cause it's pretty, you know, 30 minute podcast is pretty easy to fit in. And, um, she said, um, <laughs> not for everybody <laughs> I realize, but I can fit in a 30 minute podcast. Um, and I've appreciated your appearance appearances. Um, and I've especially appreciated when you have talked about, um, how your vision and your experience with things has informed, um, the way that you use the tech or the thoughts that you have about it. Um, so like, I don't know, on the one hand, I feel like, like, obviously, not obviously, like, you might not want to be like that person, like, I don't know, if it feels like being the token person with low vision on a show or whatever, you have to talk about it. But, um, but when you do talk about it, I appreciate it. I don't know if that's helpful at all. But It is. Um, and and I, I think once, you know, we, you, on that show, every guest comes with a topic. And I think, one time, and I don't even remember what it was, but one time I came with an accessibility topic and I had to give myself permission to do it. I felt like, because there's part of me that's like, these guys are going to hear about accessibility. It'll happen. And there's another part of me that's like, oh God, uh, okay, they think when they're booking the show, we're going to get the low vision person on and we can get our accessibility credits, which is not the way I think they operate. I I know Jason and Dan and I absolutely, I'm just saying that, you know, 
in your darkest heart when you're when you're thinking about stuff like that. It's where and then mm-hmm. so so what I what I do too is that when I go on I try to go on mainstream shows and talk to people and write about things that have nothing to do with accessibility because I'm a geek about all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I write about and I'm very interested in classic film and I'm also a cocktail enthusiast. And so those are like there's no there's no possible way that that could have anything to do with accessibility, except I just found today a -a blogathon about accessibility in film and except when I was at the CSUN Accessibility Conference, which is like the biggest tech conference for accessibility stuff that happens in March. Uh, I did a presentation, not a presentation, but I did a party promoting my book and I called it Accessible Cocktails and I showed blind people how to make cocktails. Nice. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, it's just everywhere. I can't get away from it. <laughs> and it's my own fault. <laughs> well, but I don't know. I, it, it's super interesting to me that um, I don't, I guess I spend a lot of time thinking about people, I think is probably pretty apparent. Um <laughs> But I don't. I hate all of them. Yeah, well, I have those moments too. But um, that's just that's just me being grumpy. <laughs> you know. But I think about how we try to put people in boxes. So, like, um, what what quota? If I ask Shelley on to less than or equal, and I do this with less than or equal, right? I'm like, Shelley comes on my show. In in what boxes is that filling in? You know, right, I ask. Right. Um, I, my friend Nat uh, from App Camp for Girls because it's required. I have to talk about App Camp for Girls at least Yay, one, once every episode. Um, but Are my you fr- bringing it to Austin, please do. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, so right. my friend Nat, you know, they were uh, they're the curriculum developer at App Camp. They were one of you know along with Gene McDonald created it. I had Nat on the show, and it's like, okay, well now I've had you know, a a more male identifying transgender person on, whereas I've only had female transgender people on before. Um, And I haven't had anyone who's like strictly non-binary on. And like, I do this thing where I put people in boxes. I do it for the show. And I kind of feel like, and I've said this before, like it's playing diversity bingo on here. But like we do that in all sorts of ways. We try to categorize people. And I don't know why we do this. We, We try... Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I'm like, okay. So. I th- well, I think I think it's a real problem when we talk about politics, and I won't get political in that sense. <laughs> but I will say that when we when we read about politics, everything is in terms of what group voters mm-hmm. fall into, and I I resist that. And I think you know you can probably have a good statistical argument with somebody about how groups vote tend to vote alike. But I don't think there's a lot of detailed analysis of it. And it ends up being insulting, Mm -hmm. especially if you fall into one of those groups, per se. And you're like, oh, well, clearly, because of what group I'm in, I vote this way. And or I have this predilection. And and there's a a sort of a, a, a glibness and a tossing it off and saying, well, okay, now we've discussed what kind of voter this candidate appeals to. Right. But we haven't. And oh, I need to find one of those to interview. So yeah. you're one of those. Tell me how you feel about candidate X. And because it's usually radio or even, you know, those scarce pixels or whatever, even the responses seem to be truncated. And the last thing you want in a medium, and I, I get a lot of my news through audio, whether it's podcasts or radio, last thing you want in a medium like that is for somebody to go on at length and have actually, you know, multi-level opinions about things. And so, yeah, I, it's it's difficult. Yeah. But at the same time, like you're – you're doing a show where you're trying to specifically find people who are underrepresented in some way or who have a different perspective. And so some of that, I guess, is going to be unavoidable. Yeah. 
Although I think what you should do is just get all of your guests together for an audio happy hour and everybody can have one one drink or whatever and then we can just chat and not have any labels and you know. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Um I've been toying around so Less than or equals biweekly now for a variety of reasons. Um, but I was, and, and part of that was because I have so many other things going on that I was just like, oh, doing this weekly is, is killing me. And then uh, my husband and I were driving, we drove to Colorado to visit my family um, last week. And I was like, well, what if we started another podcast that wasn't like diversity focused? And it was like, and I'm like, what am I saying? But um, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> Stop it, Aline. But I, I, I really would, um, because as I, I love talking to people, but I feel like, you know, like sometimes the scope of less than or equals is limiting in a way that I didn't anticipate it would be. Um, and in other ways, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if I didn't have the focus I do, but, um, but yeah, I think it'd be fun to just, I'd, I'd love to have a less than or equal party somewhere and, yeah. and just like, just like talk and get to know all sorts of different people and have fun. I think it's hard when your, your brain is somewhat creative, whether that means you're literally making creative work or whether you just have the kind of curiosity that comes from a creative brain. And that's, I, I have this, this blog I create, but it, it makes no sense because I have all these categories and I might write about classic film and I might write about the Mac and I might write access, about accessibility. So how would anybody possibly follow it? Because mm -hmm. I have all these, and I love that. I mean, I love the idea that I can write about it and I guess I have to just not care whether, a, you know, a million people read it or I have to have RSS feeds for each. Oh, RSS feeds. How old fashioned. Oh, I crap, was going to say, those every... are dead, aren't they? Aren't I know, they? right? And that's irritating to me because I love them. I and I too. have... I have strong opinions about and interests in a lot of things that have nothing to do with what I do for work. It's like I say, the whole classic film thing. Mm -hmm. There's there's a they, there was just an enormous classic film festival a couple of weeks ago that I didn't get to go to, but I followed ravenously on Twitter. And then this week, next weekend, I'm going to one here in Austin, and I have actually committed in writing that I'm going to do some writing about it. And I've signed up for a film writing blogathon because that's a thing in the film wow. classic film community. And it's like. Part of me thinks that's really great and that it's actually good for me in terms of developing my creative side as a writer because writing about film is super different than writing about, you know, nuts and bolts and gears and software. But the other part of me is like, what are you doing? As, and as my mom would say, you're not getting paid for that. What are you doing? <laughs> and I've th done things all my – don't tell anybody, but I've done things all my life for which I've not gotten paid. Oh, well. Our secret. I keep doing it. <laughs> don't call me because I'm not doing it. <laughs> That's actually um, really, this is timely for me because, um, so I recently, I don't know that I announced it on here. I'm trying to think. Uh, so my last day at my job was April 1st. Um, oh, awesome choice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get anyone who was like, or I guess that was my first day of unemployment. I didn't right. get anyone who was like, is this a joke? Everyone believed me. But um, uh, so my last day of or my last day of employment, I guess, was March 31st. And um, most of that was so that I could get app camp for f girls in Phoenix um, kind of off the ground and give it the time that it needed. But there was also like, um, you know, I just had been working a very long time and was a little burnt out and needed some time. And I wanted to learn objective C because I've been saying I'm going to learn objective C forever. So I'm sitting down and doing that. And, um, but I've also had kind of the, the space and time to be more introspective 
and thinking about a lot of things and uh, like, oh, I should really blog about this or write about this. And I don't because um, somewhere along the way, the blog that I update once every three to six months has (laughs) become in my mind a tech blog. And I can't write about these other things because I have an audience of not many people and they are expecting technical topics. And, um, and that's something I just need to like get over. But it's really interesting that you said that to me just now because of how that just fits in what I've been thinking the last, I don't know, week. I had to give myself permission and I also had to think of it as, like I say, as more of a creative outlet for me than something for readers. I Mm -hmm. hope people read it. I hope that every once in a while when I post something, it's of interest and I get a few comments and I I can look and see how many people check out the blog. It's not a lot because I, and I have other outlets. So because I can do podcasts and because I write regularly and for publication, for which I do get paid, um, <laughs> then I feel like if I want to make a blog that's just for me, I mean, I don't fancy that I have fans. Oh, what is Shelly talking about? But there are a few people that follow it. Mm-hmm. But once I gave myself permission and started to approach it as a creative outlet, it didn't necessarily make me write more, but it gave me permission to write about things more, you know, a few few times, a few, few different things. So I, like I say, the classic film thing, like I just did this dumb post, which is basically holding myself responsible for actually trying to write about it. Because I read, when, when I read stuff that I really like, I always want that to be me. Like I always, I, I, I identify as a writer more mm-hmm. than anything else. And so if I am really, and I read constantly, and if I'm interested in something and it's really well written, or I, if, if there's, and I'm also, I love communities. So like the, the classic film community and the, the tech community and accessibility community and all these various things, I want to be part of those communities. And sort of the price of admission in some cases is I I'm, I want to be a blogger like these guys uh, because I know I can do it. I just have to take the time and give myself permission and commit to do it. And I think if I wrote more, I would have a better sense of whether I was making a mistake doing multiple topics, but I don't write enough for that even to matter. Right. I mean, sometimes it's just, hey, look, I was on this podcast. You should go listen. Yep. And sometimes I don't, I don't write on it for six months. So if I'm not going to write on it for a month or two or three, then I feel less compulsion to stick to one topic Mm. (laughs) you know living in austin have you always been there is that somewhere where you moved to i was born i was raised in austin and i spent five years in the bay area when i worked for mac user Uh, in the 90s Uh, and then i came back because i was just wicked homesick um i enjoyed it was it was a great job i i learned so much being out there but when i and it was also getting to the point where it was far easier at that time to work freelance, both in terms of there, there were gigs at that time. And then also you, you could do it at home because internet was reliable and all that good stuff. So I've been in Austin since, uh, 97 when I moved back and except that it gets hot in the summer. I like it. <laughs> well, and it's an excellent place to live if you are a, a film lover because it is yeah, music, film, all that good stuff. I've, I've, I love music as well. I've never had any desire to write about it. I just like to listen to it, but, um, it's uh, you know, we have obviously a pretty big tech community as well, and I don't, I don't plug into that scene in person as much as I might, which is fine with me. But um, it it's stimulating in the sense that when you talk to people, you get the sense that they get it, mm-hmm. that you're a you're a nerd, and that you you know, tech is your your life in some regard, and so um, it's a good place for that. Yeah. Well, Shelley, we've talked about a lot today. Was there anything else that you wanted to to mention oh god um 
I don't guess so. I mean, uh, if if people want to buy my accessibility book, I'd love it if they do that. Uh, and also listen to my podcast, uh, the Parallel Podcast, which you can find at parallelpodcast.com. Okay. And the book is at iosaccessbook.com. Okay. And um, where else can people find you online? Is, are there any? I'm Shelly on Twitter, S-H-E-L-L-Y. I got in early. You did. And uh, That was a result of a story. It's a total accident. But yeah, so uh, usually I'm, I'm on Twitter more than I am anyplace else. But uh, Parallel Podcast, the book, and Twitter uh, are a good st- Oh, and also, well, the blog. Since I talked about the blog, I guess <laughs> I have to plug it. If you go to brisbane.net, B-R-I-S-B-I-N.net. And those are all be in the show notes. Um, and you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to relay.fm slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes to help people find the show and know it's good or even recommend it in apps like Overcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks once again to Martian Craft for sponsoring. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal.